Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by my co-host, Medea Ocher, LARB's managing editor. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. Um, so today we're speaking with Celine Siama, whose film is called Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Mm-hmm. And it's a French film, and unfortunately, I wasn't able to be there for this interview, um, but I've heard wonderful things about this movie, and why don't you tell me what the conversation was like? The conversation was interesting for a number of reasons. One, the, well, the movie, I was at first disposed not to like it. I didn't want huh. to like something this slow, <laughs> and I wanted to hold my ground and not liking it. But then as I watched it, it really, it's a very beautiful movie, and It totally won me over. But one of the more interesting things about it, or I thought was interesting that we really wanted to talk to Celine about, was the point of view of a female filmmaker and how a woman handles representations of love, sex, the development of a loving relationship, and how she represents those things as they happen between two women on screen without objectifying those women and without kind of blindly falling into the ways in which cinema has treated women's bodies and sexuality in the past. And Celine is an extremely thoughtful filmmaker when it comes to those questions. So we discussed that. And um, we discussed her work as a feminist filmmaker in France and how the movie has been received both in France and, and here and around the world. Wow. Sorry to have missed that. That sounds really up my alley. And um Worthwhile topics there. Yeah, she was a wonderful guest and has much to say on the subject. Mm-hmm. Well, great. Let's listen to that then. And um, I should note that the next voice you hear will be Eric Newman, our sweet third host who is there with you and who will be introducing Celine. Yes, that's right. Let's get to it. We are thrilled to have director and screenwriter Celine Siama with us in the studio today. Siama's directorial work has produced a number of award-winning and award-nominated films, including My Life is a Zucchini, one of my favorite titles from your work, Girlhood, Tomboy, and Water Lilies, among others. She joins us today to talk about her latest film, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which received a Golden Globe nomination for Best Foreign Language Film. Portrait of a Lady on Fire centers on the relationship between Marianne, a young painter who has been commissioned to paint an apparently impossible subject, the fierce Eloise, a young woman miserable and condemned to an arranged marriage that has pulled her out of the quiet life she previously lived in a convent. As Marianne covertly paints Eloise's portrait, the two form a passionate, erotic bond in a film that asks big questions about the oscillating freedom and limitations of a woman's life in 19th century France, but which carries transhistorical resonance to us in the present. Welcome to the show, Celine. Hi. So one of the things that it looks like you deal with over and over in your work is sexual awakening, whether it's Mm. in teenagers or young women as in this film. What is it about that process that fascinates you? Why do you come back to it so often? Well, I kind of see Portrait of a Lady on Fire on a different scale regarding that Mm -hmm. sexual awakening. I think Portrait of a Lady on Fire is about desire, the rise Mm -hmm. of a desire, which is, of course, can be seen as sexual awakening. But within the coming-of-age stories that I've been doing before, 
sexual awakening was kind of getting to know yourself. Mm-hmm. It was about meeting yourself. Whereas this time, in this love dialogue between two grown <laughs> women, it's about discovering somebody else. It's about a love dialogue that is completed. But you're right. I mean, it's kind of the same process. But the common point is actually be very patient and careful mm-hmm. about the rising of emotions and sensations. So that's something that I keep coming back to. And, you know, it's it's quite a convention that we have in cinema. Love at first sight. It's mm-hmm. like we mm-hmm. kind of not pay attention to that phase of desire. And I wonder why. So to riff off of this a little bit, one of the things that I'm particularly interested in in this film, and I want to talk later about representation as a question itself for the film, but there seems to be an oscillation or maybe a weird dualism between freedom and constraint in the movie, right? So on the one hand, you have, and this is not really spoiling anything, I don't think, that you have Eloise is constrained to a marriage she doesn't want, and she's pulled out of, for familiar reasons, a life that she had wanted, and that's been taken away from her. At the same time that that is happening, she also has a queer, so to speak, kind of freedom of refusing portraiture, and then when she's around women, an almost utopian world that gets created, which seems to me in some ways to resonate with the convent, the imaginary of the convent that she had before. But I'm interested in how you think about this dualism between like how you can have both limitation and freedom at once, or maybe an oscillation. Well, that's being a heroine versus ah. being a hero. A woman's journey is about having to compose with oppression. The fact that portrait is set in the past actually makes it official. You know, we <laughs> all agree to the fact that women are oppressed. Whereas today, you know, this is polemical. Subject uh, of debate. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, that's why this idea of the utopia, I think, is quite interesting. Because, you know, some people actually ask me the question, like, where is this island where there are no men? Uh, right. <laughs> like it would be Wonder Woman Island. Right, yeah. exactly. Um, Themyscira. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking, yeah. And it's not the case. Obviously, there are men on this island. It's just that they're not in the frame. And I think it's that's really a choice of cinema, you know, what you put mm. in the frame. It doesn't mean that they're not there. It, actually, what you don't put in the frame defines the frame. So basically, the fact that men are not in the frame defines the oppression. Can you talk about the choral moment on the beach? That, to me, is where I think you can locate almost a utopian aesthetic absorption in the film, where they're singing in chorus and then also clapping. Yeah, I mean, I think utopias are not, and dystopias are the same, are not this ideal words in our mind. They are rooted in our experiences. I mean, I know about being among only women, even though I live in a very mixed world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and as dystopia, you know, the places where we are oppressed, as in the, and men's tell, for instance. Mm-hmm. That's why it's, I think it's so important that we get some women-driven stories in cinema. Because cinema is the only art form where you can share somebody's loneliness through mm. space and time. Mm. Mm. And if you want to share women's journey, you have to share their loneliness because otherwise it's you share the mundane way of life and period pieces are always about mundanity. And so you share their performance of femininity. Whereas in this case, sharing their loneliness, their exclusivity, you get to share their intimacy. The bonfire scene is about sharing sorority among a big group of women. It convokes a lot the imaginary of witches in a very dual way. First, making it very naturalistic, like witches were just women with knowledge, with autonomy. 
there were botanists, there were doctors, and they were basically sharing friendship, hanging out. It was cold, so there was a fire. They could get drugs, so they would fly. And that's what they burnt. Those were the mm. witches. So we're trying to make it really naturalistic, but then convoked all the imaginary around it with that powerful song that they all chant. So we're playing to side here, convoking the imaginary of witches, but also embodying it in a very more naturalistic way. Now, has anyone pushed back on your decision not to feature men within the frame? Because your frames, when you watch the film... They're very beautifully constructed. They look often like a painting. Mm -hmm. It's quite still. There are objects placed very carefully and obviously. And so when you exclude men from that image, have people taken offense to that or had a problem with the exclusion? In the process of making the film, and even that includes financing, it was never mentioned because I think you couldn't tell. I mean, I think when you read the script, you can't think, oh, there are no men. Yeah. But... Then when the film is done and the film is being watched, of course, that was commented a lot. Mm-hmm. Depends also on the culture. In France, mm-hmm. I've been asked this question a lot. In yeah. Italy, I've been asked this question a lot. It's sometimes it's the first question, why are there no men? So, yeah, it's been, I have to justify myself a lot. Yeah, yeah I'm about sure. That. So one of the things I was also wondering about is, have you seen a progression in terms of how, particularly in France, sex and sexuality and the understanding of those things has changed over your career or your lifetime, really. Because I can see the French saying, you know, what is this? Why are there no men in this movie? Yeah, yeah. and you're right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can see changing because we're making it change. That doesn't mean that we don't have resistance, intellectual resistance, and also sometimes, you know, I think I'm getting more and more radical. It's not that I'm politically more and more radical. It's that I'm more and more radical in my craft because I think I'm, you know, I have more and more experience. That's interesting. Can you explain what that means? Well, you know, you. it's about believing in the tools of cinema. And I think Mm. I believe more and more and more in the tools of cinema. And I believe more and more in the fact that being radical is being generous, which is something that I didn't... I kind of stopped trying to justify myself or trying to fit in from film to film. And... Yeah, the idea that being radical is being generous. Like, for instance, the fact that there are no men in the film. Well, there are men in the beginning, in the boat. And there's and that then intruder. There's, yeah, mm-hmm. and then there's a man that comes yeah. back in the end just to pick up the portrait. So he's not an enemy, he's not a bad guy, he's just a handyman. But when you see him, it's kind of a scare jump. Yeah. And that scare jump is patriarchy. And everybody in the room, men or women, they're both <laughs> like, it's super sad to see mm-hmm. this guy. And that's the tools of cinema. It's like, if you put men out of frame, suddenly when they come back, you see them. And you look at them. Like, mm-hmm. I had this, this kind of a trivia, but I think it tells a lot. I did the bonus for the film and did this commentary, audio commentary. Mm-hmm. And there was the sound guy that was sitting next to me. He hadn't seen the film. And so I was talking for two hours. And he was recording and listening and discovering the film. And when... He sees the man in the frame coming back and then also you see his hand, you see a close-up of his hand. And I saw him looking at his own hand. Wow. <laughs> because he never gets, you know, that's why it's important even for men not yeah. to be in the frame sometimes, just also to take a look at themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And seeing him look at his hand like if it was this weird thing, like, oh, this is what a man looks like. This is what the hand of a man looks like because mm-hmm. we've been among women for so long, for two hours in a very immersive way. I think that's, yeah, that tells about the power of cinema. 
Along these lines, I mean, obviously, one of the things that I feel has been talked about much more publicly in the last, say, like three to five years is both the promise of female filmmakers and the utter lack of like recognition in terms of like awards or mm-hmm. like the still incredible struggle that female filmmakers have to go through mm-hmm. in order to get their films made, mm-hmm. right? Like, I guess I was just struck by the Golden Globes this past weekend where it was like still no female directors nominated for Best Director, Mm -hmm. despite a number, yours included, of fantastic films directed by women. So do you think that we're stalling out in that progress or do you think that what we're seeing is just the uneven march towards a better kind of future? Well, you know, I come from an industry that is very privileged in general and also very privileged regarding women directors. We are 25% of directors in France, Mm. women directors. This looks amazing, but the figures have been still for like 30 years. And when you look at women's career, we have less money, we make less film, and women who make a second film, they are rare, then a third film, a fourth film, a fifth film. I mean, it's pretty rare, so we kind of disappear. And I think it's the same with awards. I mean, they love to discover us. Right. We always get discovered. Look at Greta Gerwig. She was mm-hmm. like nominated mm-hmm. for an Oscar for Lady Bird. She was discovered. They love to point at us, say, oh, we discover you. Mm-hmm. Which is also very paternalist. Sure. <laughs> but then, we don't enter a history hall. Mm-hmm. We don't enter a museum. We don't become right. legit. Part of the canon. Yeah. yeah. This has been going on for a long time. And I don't see yeah. much progress here because, I mean, I see progress in the fact that we are actually discussing this. And the fact mm. that it's kind of impossible to say, well, we're just looking at cinema. I mean, they are doing it at the head of the festivals in Europe. They are doing it. They're saying, oh, no, don't worry. We're genderblind and colorblind, which I think is impossible. But well, just, the right, minute that those words creep in, you already know that they're just a cover for the opposite of that. Yes, right? of course. But still the head of the Venice Film Festival, which mm-hmm. is so important for American mm-hmm. cinema, for mm-hmm. instance, mm-hmm. says that. Mm-hmm. Like it's yeah. a good news. Yeah, that is so good. <laughs> yeah. So it means yeah. that it is a matter of political will We know we've been doing the math. We know, for instance, in France, that if we just leave it to the natural curse of things, it will be parody 2042. Mm. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Céline Siama, whose new film is Portrait of a Lady on Fire. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Amanda Yates Garcia in the studio with us today. Amanda is a writer, artist, and professional witch. She's the Oracle of Los Angeles. Her latest book is called Initiated Memoir of a Witch. And Amanda's here to recommend a book for us. Amanda, what book are you going to recommend? I am going to recommend a sand book by Ariana Rains. So have you read that? Have you had her on? The we show? have had her on. Yeah. I didn't talk to her and Kate talked to her, but yes. She is such an extraordinary genius. And yeah, it's just poetry that hits you like an asteroid. You open the book and it, and literally it hits you. The opening of the book, like the first poem, hits you like the opening shot of Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood. You know, where okay. it just like bangs onto the screen. It's like, <laughs> and you're like, oh my God, we are in for a ride. It's just, when I first started reading it, I was like totally speechless. It's just so 
confident, full of heart and heartbreak and truth to power and truth to everyone. And it's also incredibly vulnerable. Like mm. Ariana is a true mystic and it's like re-envisioning what mysticism is and can do. And it feels so intimate. It feels mm -hmm. like you're her lover, her father, her mother, her child, her hated and reviled president. <laughs> and if you read only one book of poetry this year, I would say, let that be the one. Wow. Can you tell me how you came to her work? Yeah. So I kind of knew about her and she's like in my friend circle, mm -hmm. but I didn't know her. And I, I was thinking about going back to do some doctoral work in spiritual ecology and she's at Harvard right now. And I knew that through fr some friends. And so I contacted her to be like, hey, can we meet up and talk about Harvard? Because I knew she was in LA. And so then I went to lunch with her and I was like, who is this person? Like, she is just amazing. And I went home and like got all her books uh -huh. and I started reading a sand book and I was like, oh my fucking God. I was like, I can't believe anything is this good. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was like speechless. I couldn't talk. I was like, this, how can this be that this is real? And then I felt embarrassed <laughs> because I was like, I just like called her up and like was like. You thought she was a regular person. <laughs> I thought she was a regular person. I didn't know that. I was in like the presence of like divine genius. And um, I've been lucky enough to become friends with her since then. And I feel always just very privileged and honored to be around her because she's just so brilliant, but also so. She's just so like kind and fully present in life and humble. But, you know, she also knows how brilliant mm -hmm. her work is because I think it's like being kind of gifted by the gods. Like she is aware of that gift and I'm glad because like that thing needs to be honored. Yeah, it's just, there's just something about it that just feels like, you know, we are living through the end times. Like things really are ending. I Something else will emerge from this, but this is a time of great upheaval and collapse. And we have mm. to be realistic about that. And, and I feel like she gives voice to what it is to be in that moment. And we need that so much. We need people to be able to speak this, to say this. Like that's what the bards are for, to be able to express what we're all going through. Like, have you ever... Had anybody close to you die? Sure, yeah. And there's something about that that is both devastating and also kind of makes you realize how beautiful life is simultaneously and, and, mm -hmm. and makes you just feel so much closer to life in a way because there's this really real thing that's happening and this really real loss that you're facing. And I feel like she is able to do that with this book, which is like a tome. It's like... 350 pages like a heavy big thing and it is it's just so necessary so yeah I highly recommend and she's an astrologer she is okay will you tell us the name of the book again and the author a sand book by ariana rains thank you so much amanda we've been speaking with amanda yates garcia her latest book is called initiated memoir of a witch thank you thanks for having me on You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Celine Siama, whose new film is Portrait of a Lady on Fire. 
So one, I mean, well, one of the things that I really struck me as I was watching your film and thinking about female direction, right, and, and women actually able to direct the camera, is the way that you depict love, desire, and sex, because those ways, potentially, when a woman is in charge, could be quite different. Mm-hmm. Do you? What do you think about when that is part of your story? And you know that often the camera has functioned very much in the service of men. How do you reconfigure or rethink what you're doing? Well, it's I'm more and more aware of politically involved and mm-hmm. and, and more and more in, into this um, to manifesto mm-hmm. kind of dynamic. Like when I made Water Lilies, for instance, I mean... The movie is totally female gaze, but I didn't even know there was a word for that. <laughs> and we had no culture of uh, looking at a film from with a gender uh, political look. You know, mm-hmm. the French critics, mm. they never look. They, they, we don't even have male gaze in France. It doesn't exist. Really? No, mm. we, have fem- we have feminine gaze. Mm. Not even female. We don't even have a word for female. We just have... Uh, just feminine. Yeah. Huh. Um, so when you don't have the words, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to define also a category and to actually fight. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm more and more aware and, and mm. I still, I'm still intuitive, of course, but, um, and you know, it's not about being theoretical and cold. Uh, I think it's also uh, being in more and more in mastering the craft of cinema mm-hmm. and so knowing you can push the boundaries, knowing it can be more fun, uh, knowing it can be more tension, knowing it can be more erotic, relying on this thing, not being afraid, not trying to fit in. And so, because, I mean, it's, cinema has been objectifying women. <laughs> I mean, it's basically propaganda. Yeah. Uh, it's the art that is mm-hmm. built on that, which is uh, such a paradox because it was invented by women cinema mm-hmm. a lot. I mean, the first Alice Guy Blachet was mm-hmm. uh, one of the first directors in the world, right around the same time as Georges Méliès. She was the first director in history to actually use a close-up in fiction. Oh, so interesting. Yeah. In, um, in a film called uh, Madame a ses envies, which could be translated as um, Madame has her own desires. And mm-hmm. It's about a woman who's pregnant, who, is, who has urges, and who's putting phallic object in her mouth. <laughs> That's one of the first films of history of cinema. You that... never hear about her. Then she came to the United States and created the first studio. Oh my God. Ah. And then she got erased. You, have you heard of her? No, no, I've never heard of her. Well. Yeah. And she's part of your culture too. Will you say her name again for the for Alice listeners? Guy. Alice Guy Blaché. Mm-hmm. Blaché was the Alice name of hers, but Alice Guy. Alice Guy. So when you look at cinema is the youngest art. I mean, now we have other arts. We have VR and everything. But I mean, cinema is like 110 years old. Mm-hmm. And on that scale, already women have been erased from art history. Uh, female gaze is not about not objectifying. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not only about that. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, course, it would yeah. be like not super interesting because it's not hard not to objectify somebody. It's not really hard. I mean, you don't have to think about it that much. Um, so I think it's mostly about <laughs> female gaze. Male gaze is a convention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a convention. Like, for instance, when Abdelatif Keshish is doing Intermezzo, like, To My Love, and is it, it's in Cannes this year, and it's the fact that it's three hours of um, twerking, it's a convention to film uh, women's uh, bottom. Yeah. It's a convention. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It seems super brave. 
but it's a convention, convention that he yeah. radically pushes. And it's and I'm not saying it's not interesting, huh? yeah. But right. I'm saying it's conventional. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Um and we are trying to depart from convention because that's what I'm interested in and mm-hmm. making films. So it means like how do you uh, craft a sex scene that will bring that will embody what I think about sexuality. Mm-hmm. So I think sexuality should be fun. I think it should be I, I'm trying to embody the sexiness of consent, which is, I think, mm-hmm. is something that hasn't been done much. So it's the, the thing is, it's like it's not about being politically aligned with what you think. It's mm-hmm. about the the op- politics is the beginning. It's not in the end, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Right. It's the beginning of it's you 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 think about your image with your also with your political identity, and there's such a reservoir of new images, new emotion within that. You know, it's so rich. That's so why I'm always amazed when people are telling me, oh, you, are you not bo- um, bothered by the idea of a, a lesbian label mm-hmm. on your film? I'm like, well, it's, I mean, it's huge. It's not, I mean, you can be disturbed by it if you think it's narrow, if you think it's a niche, if you think it's, but it's so, it's such a powerful imaginary and such powerful reservoir for new things to give. To people, so it could be new entertainment, yeah. well, new rights. So I'm, I mean, I find it really powerful, and I'm happy that I'm set, that I am obsessed with this kind of narratives and images and ideas because I get to, I mean, it's fun. I get to explore a right. lot. Well, it's also in that I mean, there is an element of like the lesbian erotics is also a kind of plea for equality, right? Um, Eloise says something to the effect of like equality would be pleasant or something like that. Um, And I think that the film tries to make at least like a sub-argument that like this is one place in which erotic desire and there are important differences. One is a client, one is a painter. Like there's lots of kind of class hierarchy going on, but Mm -hmm. there's a certain leveling effect of the general femaleness that I think as an erotic bond proposes something else utopian. But aside from that, one of the things that I'm very interested in and along kind of these lines of thinking about the erotic in your film is the erotics of representation itself, right? Or the the variety of intimacies that are possible in several different representational media, mm-hmm. right? So on the one hand, you have Marianne's painting and as part of her work to you know, render a portrait of Eloise, she has to deftly observe her. And you show, I think, in really great ways how even if this did not kind of consummate in an erotic union, right, it would nonetheless still be erotic because she's like thinking about her body, about lines, about the way that she holds herself and then imitating those things. Like there's a lot of kind of duplication that I found interesting where Marianne is trying to like imagine herself as Eloise. And so I wanted to to ask you both how you thought about that in the film and also how you think of the erotics or intimacies of representation yourself as a filmmaker, right? Of really coming to know the object by representing it. I see what you mean. No? It's just that I'm trying to collect my thoughts in my, <laughs> my, bro- my broken English. Um, when I think about making a film, and I'm thinking even about uh, writing it, which is a very lonely, not, not right. libidinal process at all. <laughs> uh, As all writers know. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I try to rely and to focus on desire for ideas. Mm. I mean, mm. that's my compass. I'm trying to 
write scene and craft images that I have a strong desire for. Okay. That's how I edit even my script. Mm. Like if there's, I'm trying to get rid of everything that is useful. And I'm doing this more and more radically from film to film. For instance, for portrait, I had some scenes that I needed because also it's very step-by-step film. Mm-hmm. You know, with a secret, with a strong tension and that you could dra- dramatically harvest uh, really easily, I must say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but when I looked at the list of the scene, was really the useful scenes. Like, I don't know, uh, the scene where she's explained she's going to have to paint her in secret, for instance. That's a mm-hmm. very, that's a use. Mm-hmm. Every scene is useful. Right. I mean, but this one, like for the storytelling, is super important. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to put it in the script until I found an idea that I'm craving for. Mm. I see. I see. And I'm being radical with this now. That is that now when the, there is a useful scene that I have no desire, strong desire for, I'm not. I'm cutting it from the script. I'm not even shooting it. So it's creating new rhythm and weird script also sometimes. But I'm sure that the desire will be constant. I mean, and that I'm sure that uh, if my desire is constant, I can transmit it to the actors, to the audience, and the, the audience the, eventually, and then right. yeah. the audience. So it's um, it's the first time that I was so radical about it. Because sometimes, you know, you're like, man, this scene, I don't know, but I, I kind of use it. And people kind of tell you, you're producer, you're like, no, you should do it in case. And there's never a good surprise about the scene, I must say. Because the useful scenes in my films, there are some that you did because you have to, because it's a step for the narrative of the character. I'm like, I'm, you don't like doing them. And I think sometimes you can you can feel it. So now I'm, I'm only going for the things that where there's appetite for and strong desire for ideas, for an idea mm. within it. And I'm, I'm, and I'm not going for the film unless it's full of that. So it's a way of writing that is also different. Because as you said, the film is obsessed with equality and is trying to bring to life a narrative without conflict, which I think is, I mean, we are taught in film school and everywhere that a good scene is a scene with a good bargain. It's somebody who wants something, the other one doesn't want to give him, and at the end of the scene, it's like, okay, you mm-hmm. will have this. It's mm-hmm. And you look at films, it's really built like that all the way. I mean, we, we're told, and especially from your culture, because mm-hmm. we don't have any, you know, in France, writing, you don't learn. Oh. <laughs> uh, so we, we I mean, I read, I, I, I read, all the books I read about writing were coming from the US, mm-hmm. you know? That's so interesting. And the narrative of conflict, if you're trying to avoid it, because, uh, well, it's it's really difficult. Like <laughs> it's the, it's the mechanic you have in your in in your mind. So I really that's a way to to depart and to to bring new narratives. But ah oh, shit, I got lost because I want, what were you saying? Um, when you are representing something, it's through representation that you actually know it, or you know it in a yeah. different way. Yeah, like the way that, that for you, that uh, that you might even be erotically drawn to it. Yes. Right? Or that in and of itself representation can be an erotic experience. So or, like or when the, she watches her, that in and of itself is erotic. That that's even part without of the consummation. Right? Yeah. Yes, but that also it's like you there are certain things you can only know about another person uh, uh-huh. or an object mm-hmm. through representing it. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. representing it gives you a different relationship to the thing mm-hmm. or person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
You yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Great. We're in agreement. Okay. <laughs> no, but I mean, but just to embody, but, but what I was saying because it might sound too theoretical, but like for instance, when she gazes at her, when she sees her face for the first time, mm-hmm. uh, and they're walking back the cliff. Not the second time. They're walking back the cliff, and I was like, okay, I, how do I make this uh, special? How do and how do I create a very active viewer? Mm-hmm. Uh, like I'm always obsessed about that. Like how do how do you um, commit this your, the audience body to the film and that their look is active, that their look will be free in the image. So by putting scarves on Eloi's mouth and you only see her high, mm-hmm. you're that's the kind of idea that gives you desire for the scene and that will bring conversation desire for the image and the character for the viewer because mm. or the sex scene for instance which is a finger in an armpit yeah. and, a, and a penetration of an armpit by a finger at first it's a very very strong close up yeah and at first you're lost in the image I think people are like mm-hmm. what am I looking at and it's fun and you, I, I'm sure your eyes are moving mm-hmm. and that's the kind of ideas that create Desire for the images, mm. yeah, mm. and it's that are new representation. Well, it's interesting because in the movie, it, in some ways, from the audience, it begs both things. One desires the image, right? So, the, one of the first things that you see in the film is when she sees the old portrait, and the face is not there, mm-hmm. right? So, immediately, what the audience wants is to see the face. Yeah. <laughs> and again, during the walk, you want to see the face. And, and when you see, you sort of see the hem of a dress approaching mm-hmm. and you anticipate the face at the top, yeah. you don't get it. Yeah. At the same time, though, we don't want the portrait to be finished, yeah. right? Because yes. if it's finished, that means that is the end of the story. Yeah. And so in some ways, the, the movie kind of pulls you in two. You want to see it. Right, and when it's finished, you want to see it. You want, and you want to see. This is also not giving anything away, but there are two versions of the portrait mm-hmm. that end up in the film, um, and one is driven by convention, yeah. and she defends it. She's like, "Well, I, well, there's things that one does when one is painting. Mm-hmm. One observes these mm-hmm. conventions, and right." And Eloise is just says, "Well, this is this is an unacceptable portrait." <laughs> anyway, so there are two ways in which you make the audience want it. And then dread it yeah. when it comes. <laughs> That's tension. <laughs> yeah. So is that one of the ways in which you see? Because I'm surprised to hear you say like no conflict. There is conflict in a way, I think. It may yeah, just not yourself. be. yourself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So is that the way that you understand conflict? That conflict somehow exists outside the narrative, outside the story. We have to place it elsewhere. Well, you said it, so now, yeah. I, now I get to think about this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but the ten, yeah, to create appetite hmm. for images and the desire for for the next image to create tension around what's a, around a face. You know, it's yeah. it's. I think it's it's our job. I think, and I'm always, I'm always asking myself, like, how do you create? Uh, suspense around the fact that you're going to see a face and for instance the paradox is that everybody knows Adele and Elle's face mm-hmm. right. and how do you create and that, you know and, and how do you create new appetite new desire new a mystery a new mystery mm-hmm. about somebody's face that you know mm-hmm. 
and especially within the star system, that is a question that everybody should ask themselves. You right. know, it's uh, how do you, yeah, how do you create suspense around the fact that you're going to see the face of an actress? Yeah. You are also involved in a political activist campaign in France. It's 50-50 by 2020. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what that is? Well, that is in that was in reaction to the Weinstein moment and the Me Too moment that didn't happen in France. Mm -hmm. So as it wasn't happening, we decided that we we didn't want to miss that opportunity to make it political. And um, as Time's Up was being launched here, there was a 50-50 by 2020 um, dynamic. Mm -hmm. And we took that dynamic from here, actually, because um, one of the, the directors who co-founded 50-50 by 2020, Rebecca Zlotowski, she was at the first Time's Up meeting and she said, oh, we, we have to do something too. And um, we have to put our foot in the door and, and make it happen in, in very, I mean... Not talking about sexual harassment because, you know, that, that didn't exist. It seemed like it didn't exist. We didn't have our monster. Uh, but um, to make it about repetition of power um, and, um, and, and to create the cultural shift, uh, actually. So it's about repetition of power and board of direction for festivals or institutions and, um, and also uh, crafting pledges for festivals, big festivals, to commit to the fact that uh, transparency of their committee mm. and um, not even parity, but... Uh, uh, and yeah, and, and the fact that their board of direction should be 50-50. So that's a first step. Then we did also trying to work on the fact that our industry should be more inclusive. So that's that was the second step. And we are trying to trying to to build tools uh, to to raise awareness and also just to make it political so that it's not like the last question at the end of the press conference in Cannes, like why are there no women? Well, you know, they're female and good. Okay, okay. So, but to make <laughs> it about, you know, because it's um I mean, um, yeah, to, 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 to make it political so that political women can actually express itself. Um, but, you know, we are in a very, we live in a very misogynistic country with a strong culture of galanterie. Uh, so uh, men are always worried that they can't hold doors for us anymore. Oh, same here. Welcome. We would love to have them hold the doors, and but leave it open so that we can go in the room. <laughs> That seems like a great place to end. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us. We've been speaking with Celine Siama, director most recently of Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARP Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 